Well, I don't, uh, I don't know what the proper Happy New Year etiquette is. We're a week into New Year. I don't know if that's too late to say Happy New Year to everybody, but I'll say it anyway. Happy New Year, and that'll be my uh, seamless transition to, into my obligatory mention of New Year's resolutions as my introduction for the first <laughs> sermon of the year. It's an annual tradition. I don't even know why I do it. I don't know why I, I include the idea of New Year's resolutions in uh, my first talk of the year in January because I, I never make New Year's resolutions. And actually, my wife doesn't make them either. Um, but for actually, I was thinking about this for two completely different reasons. Um, I don't make New Year's resolutions because I'm not a real goal-driven kind of person. Um, I'd rather just roll with the year, roll with the punches, see what happens and kind of go with it. And so I'm not a real goal setter and, and go getter in that sense. So there's probably value there that I'm missing out on. Um, but it, right now, my wife would be more goal driven than me by far. Uh, right now, she's not a New Year's resolution person either because we got a lot of stuff going on. And she said to me this week, I'd hate to set some New Year's resolutions or set some goals for 2017 and then not meet them and then feel like a failure because we just had too much stuff going on. So we're just kind of rolling into 2017 with no idea of what, what's going to come. Um, and I'm comfortable with that because, because in order to set a New Year's resolution, this is really true, in order to set a kind of goal for yourself, you really do have to have this crystal clear picture of what it is that you're aiming for, right? This vision of the kind of person that you want to be in 2017 and and in a sense that's true on in, uh, whether you're talking about fitness and diet or whether you're talking about education or work goals or marriage family goals or friendship goals or whatever it is you just have to have this vision of who I want to be in 2017 and uh, and that's true of faith too which is why we're doing this series at the beginning of the year called poster child because it's it's about painting a picture of this vision of the kind of person God is inviting us to be in 2017. Who, who is God inviting us to be? What is a poster child, in, in, in God's eyes, what does a poster child of faith look like? What are those essential characteristics? And so to, to dig into that, we're going back to uh, studying the story of Jesus, which we've done on and off for the last number of years, looking at a biography written about the life of Jesus by his friend Matthew, uh, who was also a follower of his. And we're picking up the story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 23, which is really picking up the, the story of Jesus at the beginning of the, the last week of his life. And this is what it says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? So Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He's going to be there for the entire week. And uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here all week. Uh, he's, and he goes into the temple every day as a part of this festival. He goes into the temple, into the gigantic courtyard. And while he's there, one of the things that Jesus does is he begins to teach the people about the life that God is inviting everybody into. And while he's doing that, it says the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him and interrupted his teaching. Now, this is 
pretty standard practice in first century Judaism. If, if especially a well-known teacher is teaching in public, it wasn't that uncommon for people to kind of yell out their questions or, or their criticism, their concerns, the challenge, the teacher, whatever, just interrupt the talk and to yell stuff at the teacher and expect the teacher to respond in real time, which makes me super thankful that I'm on video at your location this morning. So feel free to yell your questions to the screen, and I'm sure that somebody in your location will answer them accordingly. <laughs> so no, so Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden, uh, these people, the chief priests and the elders, are interrupting his teaching with his question, and the crowds would have loved it, because they loved to hear the banter back and forth between two um, influential religious teachers in this public dialogue. And so they interrupt Jesus' teaching with this question. They say, who gave you the authority to do these things, the things that you're doing? Now, which things are they asking about? Well, if you were here last fall, they're doing, he's doing the things, they're talking about the things that he was doing that we were talking about in November and December. Riding into Jerusalem and proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the King that God has sent into the world to to usher in an era of peace and abundance and joy and healing in the planet. Going into the temple and and flipping over tables and demanding religious reform because people are getting excluded from the opportunity to be in the presence of God. Healing people who are blind and people uh, who are lame, people who probably shouldn't even be in the temple, but Jesus is healing them and welcoming them in, accepting the praise of the people around who are singing songs about how he's the Messiah. Even teaching publicly in the temple, the chief priests and the elders would have, would have considered Jesus to be kind of a country bumpkin, a a preacher from backwater nowhereville, you know, a village preacher who doesn't have the right to kind of assert his teaching into the public conversation. And so they interrupt him and they say, who gave you this authority to do these things? And, and you have to understand when I say that the people enjoyed listening to, you know, religious heavyweights duking it out in these public debates, there would have been no heavier hitters than the chief priests and the elders. We're talking about the people who were responsible for the administration of the entire religious life of the nation of Israel as it happened in the temple in Jerusalem. They, they would have been, you know, in our context at Southridge, our staff leadership team, kind of the people who are responsible just to oversee everything that happens in worship and beyond in the community of faith. When it talks about the elders of all the people, um, the elders were volunteer uh, lay leaders. They, they were not paid professionals. They were just volunteers who were the most spiritually influential religious figures in the nation of Israel outside of the temple. Uh, kind of like our elders, you know, who are volunteer chair members of the board of directors who are responsible ultimately for the direction of everything that happens. Um, in our community. Together, those two groups formed the civic government that, that governed the entire nation of Israel. These were the single most significant <clears throat> and influential figures <coughs> excuse me, in the entire nation. 
And they're going toe-to-toe with Jesus and, and challenging this unknown preacher from backwater nowhere and saying, who do you think you are that you're coming into Jerusalem and doing these things? Who gave you this authority? In verse 24, Jesus replied, he said, I'll, I'll also ask you one question. And if you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Jesus says, let me throw it a question to you. And if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. It's a, it's a pretty standard rabbinic move. The rabbis would often answer questions with questions. It was kind of like a spiritual jujitsu. You're kind of using the momentum of the, of the challenge against your opponent, right? And so Jesus says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll absorb your question. I'll toss it back out to you. And you answer my question and I'll answer yours. He says, when you think about John the Baptist, was John the Baptist a prophet sent by God? Or was John the Baptist some, just a charismatic human leader or a crazy person or something? Was John the Baptist just a regular old human being? What, what do you think? Now, a little background. John the Baptist had a public life before Jesus and essentially preached the same message as Jesus, that God was doing something new in Israel, God was doing something new in the world and he wanted people to get on board with what he was doing. The word for it is repent of the way they'd been living and get on board with what God is doing. And, and at the end of his ministry, John the Baptist began to point to Jesus and say, he's the one that God is going to do it through. And so Jesus throws this question out to the chief priests and the elders and says, what do you think? John the Baptist, a prophet of God or just charismatic leader? What do you think? And they know right away that they're trapped on the horns of a dilemma. In fact, it says, verse 25, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. They're like, we, there's no answer. There's no right answer. Because if we say that he was God's prophet, Jesus will say, then why didn't you believe and if we say, nah, he was just a you know, regular guy, charismatic human being, but basically, you know, God wasn't in what he was doing, well, the people are going to rebel. They're going to revolt against us. If, if we reject John, they'll reject us. And so this is their answer. They, verse 27, they answered Jesus, uh, we don't really know. And then Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Jesus says, well, you're not going to answer my question. I'm not going to answer yours. You understand what Jesus was doing? He, he wasn't just evading the question or avoiding the conversation. Jesus threw out his question because he wanted to test the hearts of the chief priests and the elders of the people. He wanted to know how open they were to having an honest and authentic conversation about what God was doing in their midst through Jesus. If they had come back and said, you know what? Um, it really seemed like it was from God, but we're not sure what to do with that because it's not what we thought. If they had come back with some sort of honest, authentic answer about how they were grappling with the question of John the Baptist's preaching, then Jesus would have engaged them in the conversation. But because their hearts were so closed to what God was doing through John, especially as since John was pointing to Jesus. Their hearts were ultimately closed to what Jesus was all about. So Jesus basically pushes them away. 
which is a really fascinating thing that I want us to take note of in a series that we're calling Poster Child. These would have been the people that everybody would have assumed was, were the poster children of what it looks like to live a life of faith. These were people who were public leaders of worship, responsible for everything that went on in the religious life of Israel. They were responsible for the interpretation of the scriptures. They were role models in how to live out a life of faith. They were civic leaders in the community. They were the kind of person you'd want to bring home to mom. Like they really were, in everybody's estimation, the poster children, because of their religious accomplishments, of what it looked like to live a life of faith. And what's interesting to me as I reflected on this story is that I think we often do the same thing. That if you ask the question, you know, what is, what is a real follower of Jesus look like? What is a real person of faith look like? Who's the poster child in your world of what it really looks like to be a Christian? oftentimes we, and I do this too, we answer questions with those same kinds of criteria. People who are faithful at church, at attending and volunteering and leading. We, we think about people who are steeped in the scriptures, who read the Bible and memorize the Bible and teach the Bible. We, we think about people who you know, are generous in how they give, people who are open in how they share their faith. We think about people who you know, are building schools in the developing world and traveling the world as missionaries. And <clears throat> excuse me, we have this sense, well, those people are really the ones who are living this fully devoted life for Jesus. Like, who's the poster child of what it looks like to follow Jesus? I don't know, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Pope Francis, like whoever that iconic person is, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. As best we can tell, by assessing what we see of their lives, the religious devotion and commitment of the way they live out their lives. And, and honestly, when you, when you think that way about what it really means to live a life of faith, to be honest, I think you're setting yourself up either for discouragement or for disappointment. Discouragement because we look at these people, Mother Teresa, right? If Mother Teresa is what it means to follow Jesus, then, like, what's my reaction to that going to be? Well, I can never be that. I'm never going to be like that. I can't be like Mother Teresa. No, she would disagree. But the point is we set up these, these incredibly, you know, these iconic figures, and we just say, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus or to be spiritual, to live a life, you know, of, uh, as a Christian or whatever. And we say, well... That's what it means. I, could, I just can't ever do that. I can never measure up to that. I'll never be the person God wants me to be. Or we experience disillusionment when those people suddenly fail to live up to our standards, right? All of a sudden you discover that that person you thought was a poster child um, of what it looks like to live a life of faith, all of a sudden you discover well, that, they're, that they're racist, or they're sexist, or they're bigoted in some other way. You, all of a sudden you discover that that priest actually has taken advantage of children, or that that pastor has cheated on her spouse. And the, the response is disillusionment. You say, well, if that's, 
If those people are the poster children of what it looks like to follow Jesus and that's the kind of hypocrisy you get, no thanks, I don't want to have anything to do with that. See, the, the problem in the way that we think about what it means to, to, what it looks like to be the ideal follower of Jesus, the problem is that we focus too much on the externals. And I don't remember if I read this passage in the fall because we were talking about a theme like this once in the fall. But in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says this, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, the problem is that's not how God measures spiritual success. That's not how God would describe the poster child of what it looks like to follow Jesus, that ideal that we're shooting for, right? God doesn't measure by the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. That's what Jesus was doing with the chief priests and the religious leaders, the elders of the people. He was, he was measuring the openness and authenticity of their hearts, their willingness to seriously consider Jesus, to consider who he is and, and what God was doing through him, to seriously consider his teaching and what that would mean for what the life God was inviting them into, to seriously consider his example and what that would look like to follow him with their lives. And what he discovered in them is that they were closed. They weren't willing to consider who Jesus really is. And so Jesus closes down the conversation and pushes them away. And I think for us, in this series called Poster Child, the question that leads us into 2017 is really this. How open are you in your heart to seriously considering what it means to follow Jesus? Maybe, maybe you're new. Maybe you just came for the first time at Christmas because you were invited. Um, and you decided to come back in January to check it out. And if so, welcome here. We're glad that you you came back. And, and, or maybe you're here after a long hiatus, but you wouldn't self-identify as somebody who has faith in Jesus, who's a follower of Jesus. And the question is, as you enter into this journey of seeking this out, of exploring this idea of faith, how open are you to considering the claims of what the Bible says about who Jesus is, that he is God who's come to earth, that he, um, that he died on the cross to deal with the sin in us and in the world that he was raised from the dead. I mean, I'm trying to wrap your mind around that or that he's alive today and that he's the king of the universe and he's guiding the world towards God's preferred future towards it. 2016 maybe didn't look like it. Uh, how open are you to seriously considering the claims of Jesus? Or maybe you've You've been on a journey of faith, and you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're, you're newer at it. How open are you in your heart to considering what the life that Jesus is inviting you into? To considering what Jesus calls sin, and taking a long, hard look at your own life, and being willing to address the stuff that's misaligned with the teachings of Jesus in you? How willing are you to consider making some serious changes in your life, in your choices, in your lifestyle, in, in um, changes in, in the habits that you acquire and in the disciplines that you're committed to so that you can grow and become more like Jesus. Or maybe you're a veteran to this whole thing and you've been around the block and you know how the deal works. How, how seriously are you willing to consider in your heart 
the invitation of Jesus to, to go deeper in 2017. To become more thoughtful about faith. To even begin to seriously to re-examine some things you've always believed are true. To, um, to make it more about relationship than it is about religion. To be, to be more committed to being in a relationship with God and in relationship with the people around you, in relationship with the poor, rather than just um, performing religious actions towards them. In what ways are you open to considering God's invitation to let love wreck your life? To be willing to make sacrifices the way Jesus did, to die to yourself so that other people can experience the life of God. That's the question. How open is your heart to what Jesus is all about? Because that, that is the single thing that Jesus is looking for in the poster children of what it looks like to follow him. And he tells this story to bring that out in this conversation. Verse 28, <clears throat> Jesus says, it's time for me to ask a question. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first, and he said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. Jesus says to the chief priests and the elders, see, I want you to imagine there's a, a, a father. He's got a small family hobby farm, a little acreage. He's got a vineyard. He's raising some grapes. and He's walking around the house one day, and he comes across his son sitting in the basement on the couch playing video games, typical millennial. And... <laughs> And he says, son, uh, some work needs to be done outside. Head outside and, and get some work done in the vineyard today. The uh, son, verse 29, I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Literally the text says, I don't want to. Um, I, I, if you have kids... You've probably been in a situation where you have said to your kids, hey, I need you to do X. And you've put a, a period at the end of the sentence, not a question mark. It's not even a question. It's a statement. I need you to do this. And had your kid look back at you and say, I don't want to. My unredeemed response nine times out of ten is, I don't care. I have told you what needs to be done. Now take that sense of indignance that I experience in that situation and multiply it by like 10,000 to understand the depth of the, of the uh, insult that this was to this father in a patriarchal, highly hierarchical society where <clears throat> the leadership of the father in the home is the thing that is felt to hold the entire society together. You don't say to your father in first century Israel, I don't want to. This kid is rude and insubordinate, disrespectful and disobedient to his dad. And he refuses to do what his dad asks him to do. But then Jesus says later on, what, what does it say? He says he changed his mind more like he had a change of heart is the way the word translated. Actually, it comes with this theme of regret. He actually regretted what he said. He regretted how he responded to his dad. He regretted not going. And, and later on, it says he went out and he actually did the work his dad asked him to do. Verse 30, it says, Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. The father goes to his other kid, 
And he says exactly the same thing, but he gets exactly the opposite response. The kid says, no, yes, sir, you can count on me. Absolutely, sir, I'll go. In fact, it's interesting. The, the, the first son just gives this curt response, I don't want to. The second son is, is pouring out like titles of honor on his dad. He doesn't even call him dad. He calls him sir. He calls him Lord, right? Like, yes, sir. Yes, master. Like, I, it's, a, it's a sign of respect and submission and submissiveness and honor. He's, he's really kind <clears> of <throat> laying it out there for his dad. And he says, I will go. In fact, the, in the Greek, it just says, I, I, me. You can count on me, dad. You can count on me. Then he sits back down on the couch and picks up the joystick and away he plays. And he, and he never goes. Verse 31, Jesus addresses himself <coughs> to the priests and to the elders. He says, which of the two did what his father wanted? And the first they answered. Jesus, Jesus asked this question. He said, which of those two sons do you want? Right, The one that was rude and curt and disrespectful and disobedient, but who changed his mind later and, and went and did the work, or the, the one who was honoring and respectful and submissive, but who never actually went and did the work. And they said, oh no, the first son, that's, that's the one we'd want. Verse 31 at the end, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. For John the Baptist came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Jesus said, listen, guys, you're exactly like that second son. Oh, outwardly, you put on this big show of honor to God and worship and submission and obedience and humility and yes Lord I will go you can count on me I'm your person but you don't actually do what God is asking you to do so the, ta the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of God instead of you they're getting in ahead of you and they're getting in Instead of you, he picks those two groups of people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, because for a first century religious man, there would have been no more repulsive community of people than the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They both flagrantly disobeyed God. They flagrantly violated God's law. They were perpetually unclean. They were unfit to be in the temple, to worship God. They, in some ways, were both working for the enemy, the Roman Empire, in their own way. They were the exact opposite of everything a religious Jew in the first century would have assumed that God wanted. Jesus says, they're like the first son. Yeah, they're maybe unrefined. Maybe even rude and curt and disobedient and disrespectful. But you know what they've got going for you that you don't? They've had a change of heart. They heard what John was preaching. They heard the invitation to repent, to leave behind the life they were living in order to align their life with what God is doing through Jesus in the world. And they dropped everything in order to give their hearts wholly over to Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are in with God ahead of you and they're in with God instead of you. 
because you're just throwing up this hypocritical smokescreen. You're just playing at religion because your heart has never really been about the one thing God wants you to be about, which is repentance. God, this is it. The poster child of what it looks like to follow Jesus has nothing to do with religion and everything to do with repentance. Everything to do with saying, I would give up anything in my life to align myself, my heart, my life with who Jesus is and what he's all about. That is the only thing I want for my life. That is the only criteria by which God measures a person's allegiance and devotion to him. It is the only thing that God looks for when he's identifying what a poster child of following him looks like. A number of years ago, uh, we had somebody uh, at our Glenridge location living in our shelter at the time. His name was Richie. Richie had lived a pretty hard life. I remember when he told his story to our community, the very first sentence of his story was, when I was nine years old, my mom taught me how to snort cocaine. Richie had a rough life, and Richie was pretty rough as a person. Uh, spent a lot of his time while he was living with us in and out of suspension in the shelter. And one day, Richie came to us and said, you know what? I want to give my life to Jesus, and I want to be baptized. And we talked to him and listened to his story and listened to his heart, and we agreed to baptize Richie. When the, when the Sunday came, Richie, who's maybe two times the size that I am, stood at the top of the stairs of the baptism tank at Glenridge and unbeknownst to anybody, decided to cannonball into the tank, much to the surprise and consternation of the people who were sitting in the first three rows who didn't realize they needed to wear a rain poncho to church that, that Sunday. He did it to get attention. He did it because he's broken and needy and said as much afterwards that he was sorry that he did it. But that was the way Richie got baptized in our community. The next day we got a letter from somebody who had been visiting us from another church who had commented in their email that they had witnessed the baptism and it had disappointed them because it was blasphemous and heretical. He couldn't believe what a shameful community that we were, that we would allow someone to blaspheme the sacred act of baptism in the way that Richie had, had blasphemed and, and been heretical about the baptism ceremony. And, and don't get me wrong. Please, don't, bap, don't cannonball into the baptism tank. Well, this man had called us every evil name in the book and had denounced our community and said he would never set foot in a blasphemous, heretical community like ours ever again. As I think back on that experience, to the degree that Richie's heart in that moment was sincerely broken, recognizing that there's sin in him that needs to get forgiven and dealt with, recognizing that there's brokenness in him that needs to be healed and restored, and just reaching out and saying, all I want is for Jesus to do in me what it is that Jesus does in me. To the degree that that spirit is alive and Richie in that moment that he's cannonballing into the tank, Richie is 10,000 times the poster child of what it means to follow Jesus than the man who was religious enough to send us a scathing email for the sacrilegious way we baptized Richie. Richie. 
That's what Jesus is trying to say. He's not looking for all sorts of religious games. He's not looking at the externals of your life and your heart. He's not asking you to beat yourself up for how you don't measure up to this impossible standard. The poster child of the one who follows Jesus is a heart that's filled with repentance and not a life that's filled with religion. And that's what Jesus is inviting you into for 2017, a heart that believes that he, Jesus, is enough. And that is enough. Let's pray. Father, we make this life of faith into all sorts of stuff that you never said that it was about. I pray that this would be a year of clearing out the clutter that hangs on to our relationship with you. I pray this would be a year where we get back to strip it all away and get back to the basics of wanting to just be the person that you've invited us to be, which is a person that comes to you week by week, day by day, moment by moment, with a heart that's willing to pour everything it has into being about everything that you are, asking you to do everything that you do in us. I pray that you would make us people of repentance rather than religion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.